And you would think in a country like Iceland, where most of the men were fishermen at some point of, of their life, and so many people drowned when traveling on land because the rivers, they, they, they had not been bridged and, and, and people were passing them without knowing how to, to swim. You would think in, in such a country, there would be a big motivation to teach the population how to swim. But on the contrary, we were latecomers. In, in early 19th century, an Icelandic writer calling for children and, and fishermen how, how to swim estimated that there were six men in the country who were skilled swimmers. And it was actually argued that it was heartless to teach fishermen to swim because it would mean that if they fell overboard, it would drag on their misery, that it would be better just to quickly and, you know, to get it uh, over with. But luckily, those voices, you know, they did not uh, reach the, the ears of the, the majority. And in the late 19th century, from, from 1880 onwards, uh, Icelanders started systematically to teach all the youth how to swim. Well, that, then you could either swim in the cold Icelandic sea, or you could try to come up with some kind of swimming pools on those places where there was geothermal uh, energy. In early 20th century, uh, Icelanders started to systematically build up schools on those places where there was easy access to hot water, mostly because there you could have swimming pools and teach everyone to swim. This is the same thing we, we, we could see in, in Reykjavik. Uh, in Reykjavik, we had hot springs close to the city center who for quite a long time had been used only by uh, working class women that would take this long walk out to these hot springs, you know, to, to wash laundry. Out of that uh, grew some primitive swimming pool that was later expanded. And then after decades of everyone going from Reykjavik all the way to these hot springs some 10 kilometers away from the, from the, the, the city, someone said, well, instead of constantly bringing the people to the hot water to swim, why not do it the other way around and pump the hot water to the town? So we can have a, a, a swimming pool where the population is. And that was really what got the ball rolling. This big success story of most of Icelandic houses being heated up with hot water pumped straight from the ground. This all started as a swimming pool project. And then almost as a byproduct, people thought, well, why not use some of this hot water to warm up several houses? That was an instant success, and Reykjavik has never looked back since. This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back to the show. This is Innovating a Bright Future, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwold, and this is the second episode of our Iceland season. The first episode should have given you the basic history of Iceland up until just after World War II. 
That clip that you heard at the beginning of the episode is one of my favorite stories that I've heard about the founding of Iceland's energy infrastructure. I find the origin of geothermal energy in Iceland to be a fascinating combination of fortune, oddity, and irony that makes the entire history of Iceland and its energy that much more charming. We will discuss what all of it means later in the episode, don't worry. Now you have the necessary context to understand the rest of the Iceland story. From here on out, we will be discussing much more technologies, practices, processes, and events related to the advent of renewable energy in the country. We're going to finish the history of Iceland in this episode, but like I said, it will be much more energy-centric and more focused for the purposes of the show. So let's continue. To refresh where we left off, we had just emerged from the Second World War and Iceland was rolling in cash as a result. Iceland had just become an official republic, breaking free of Danish control and establishing an independent nation. Along with all of that, after recovering from the aftermath of World War I and the Great Depression, Icelanders were fed up with dependency and were set on having energy autonomy above all else. To be clear, the Icelandic economy at this point was still very much based on the export of fishery and agricultural products, while the country still had to import many essential resources for construction and industry, as well as energy. While Iceland wanted to separate its energy sector from mainland Europe above all else, it really had no method of doing so before the Second World War. It was almost entirely disconnected from the mainland, and therefore communication and technology were difficult to come by for Icelanders. With little previous exposure to outside technologies, World War II, with all the motorized vehicles, communication technology, energy infrastructure, globalization, and various other modern revolutions that accompanied it, brought about a complete reimagination of Icelandic society, with technology, communication, and local cheap power generation at its core. Icelanders often refer to the mechanization of the fisheries, especially when people started to put motors into small fishing boats, as the Icelandic in uh, Industrial Revolution. This meant that the first generation of craftsmen, you know, that, that were skilled to, to, to work with machines and engineers, came with that big technological change. When they were not working for the uh, fishing industry, uh, they would look around, you know, for other tasks and, and think about how they could use their skills in, in, in other fields. We saw the electrification of Iceland, where people started to, to, to look to the rivers that could be harnessed for, for, for production of, of uh, electricity. And today, the vast majority of our electricity produced with hydropower plants. And then more and more people... Uh, were interested in figuring out ways, you know, how to harness geothermal energy. People had read stories about geothermal uh, news reports from uh, Icelanders who had emigrated to America, that in certain places in, in, in North America, people were using hot water for uh, house heating, those first Icelandic engineers started to study this and look into it. This was the exposure that Iceland needed. All of a sudden, Icelandic engineers were hearing stories from emigrants and foreigners 
learning from technologies established outside of Iceland, and trying to figure out how those same technologies could be used inside the country. Access to information is something we don't think about much today. That's because we have access to pretty much every technology and invention ever created in the human mind, all in the palm of our hands. It was so much different at this point in history. For a country to build out infrastructure, or technology projects, whatever it might be, they must have seen, analyzed, and evaluated existing works to draw inspiration. And if there was no such idea in the immediate vicinity, it was pretty difficult to travel long distances safely, which made the sharing of ideas exponentially more difficult than it is today. World War II changed all of that. Now that Iceland had the technological means of energy production, as well as the money to make it happen, they could begin building out the Iceland of today. So instead of using the established system of small to medium coal and oil generators, Iceland abandoned the fossil fuel reliant methods of the pre-war era and began to look at its own natural resources. Now to be clear, hydropower wasn't new, and the first hydropower facility was established in Iceland in 1904, with enough energy generation for 15 houses. Even before the war started, Iceland had built enough hydropower facilities to use electricity for cooking as opposed to imported coal. However, the war granted more opportunities for advancing technologies, better materials and expertise, and a whole lot more funds to use for building. It began with more small-scale generation, mostly run-of-river turbines for uses on farms and in towns, but it was soon scaled up to larger rivers, and eventually, the government got involved. The episodes following this one will talk a lot more about the technology behind hydropower and geothermal energy, however, I should distinguish run-of-river hydropower from impoundment hydropower. In short, run-of-river plants were some of the first developments of the technology, and they are still useful in smaller scale or off-grid applications today. A run-of-river facility operates by diverting a river, channeling it through a mechanical system designed to capture its energy in one way or another, and then channels it back into the original stream, and the diverted water rejoins the rest of the river on its usual path. It's pretty clear from this definition that this was a relatively easy method of energy generation even before heavy machinery and complex generators were established, making it ideal for early settlers all over the world, including Iceland at the beginning of its industrialization. Impoundment, on the other hand, is probably what you think of when you imagine hydropower facilities today. These usually involved a dammed reservoir accompanied by a large turbine that is turned by the water when it flows through the dam. The rotation of the turbine also turns a generator, which, as we explored in detail in a previous episode, creates electricity by spinning magnets within an electric field. So when renewable electrification began in earnest after the war, it moved quickly. A combination of small facilities and larger impoundment facilities began stretching across the country as a whole, with the transmission infrastructure to accompany it. There was one problem though. Even though Iceland made a lot of money off of World War II, Energy infrastructure is astronomically expensive, and much of that money was already in the hands of citizens. Even though the identity of Iceland was formed around the concept of energy independence, high capital costs were still a big ask of the people. So I asked Stefan, where did Iceland get the money it needed? Our complete lack of uh, responsibility helps, uh, because... It's interesting to see. I, I, I have actually done uh, quite a bit of, of, of studying into this. When Iceland was, was building its first uh, hydropower plants, they went abroad to European banks to get loans for the projects. 
and the bankers were appalled to to realize the Icelanders they were asking for a hundred percent loan, you know, for this project, and in some cases even uh, as high as hundred and ten percent loan because they wanted to use some of the money, you know, to refinance the the the, the previous power plant they had built. This was really not the, the the Scandinavian way of doing things, but but Icelanders have always been very good at at uh, making bold plans, you know, with lack of responsibility, and often it was uh, difficult. In, in in many cases, they needed to use political pressure to get uh, loans in in foreign institutions, and and they were vital to building up some parts of, of the system. And then also this model of connecting big foreign heavy industry company with the, the construction of big hydro plants has turned out to be a winning formula, or at least uh, it did so for uh, a considerable part of the second half of the 20th century. So one way or another, Iceland had the money it needed. The country continued building bigger and more ambitious projects, using the resources it had at its disposal, making bold moves in energy infrastructure, technology development, and national pride, while incurring a tiny bit of debt overseas. Maybe not all that tiny, but hydropower plants are expensive, and you have to spend money to make money. That last part about pairing heavy industry with energy generation? Don't worry, we'll get there shortly. By the mid-1950s, the number of hydropower facilities in Iceland had grown into the 600s, supplying energy for communities all over the country. In 1965, Iceland established the National Power Company to manage large energy resources across the country. It also has an Icelandic name that I should have gotten Stefan to say because I'm just going to butcher it anyways. Around the same time, in the 1960s, the local Icelandic power grid reached a point of stability where electricity generation for homes and businesses began to be sourced from hydropower instead of imported fossil fuels. Although just another stepping stone on their journey to energy independence, in hindsight this was a massive milestone for the Icelandic people, as it became clear that they possessed the resources required to have the independence they wanted. From this point onward, the hydropower sector of Iceland would only grow becoming more integrated and more familiar to the Icelandic people, and establishing the sector as the backbone of the Icelandic economy. Before we move on to how this impacted the rest of Icelandic society, I think we've forgotten about a particularly important part of Iceland's energy sector, geothermal energy. We heard an excerpt from my conversation with Stefan at the very beginning of the show, so I'll quickly refresh your memory on how exactly it went down. This is well before even the First World War, around the mid-1800s. Swimming was not encouraged in early Icelandic society because it prolonged the lives of fishermen should they fall in and was considered cruel. Until it wasn't. Of course, the society realized that maybe people would live longer if they knew how to swim in a country where the economy at the time was almost entirely fish and the land was crisscrossed by rivers. At this point, geothermal heating pools came into the picture as an alternative to teaching swimming lessons in the frigid ocean. So. Icelanders recognized the potential of the geothermal heat emanating from the ground, utilizing the natural heat to heat the pools. This concept evolved over time, and it wasn't long before people began using the pools for activities like laundry and simple recreation. As all technologies do, geothermal usage went through many interactions in Icelandic culture, 
but the most impactful was probably that those helpful warm pools, they could be anywhere. Instead of making the trek out to an isolated geothermal site outside of a town or city, why not bring the pool into the town? And of course, the first place this happened was in Reykjavik, where the first man-made geothermal pool and pool house were established. At this point, we just have to take a minute to recognize the cultural significance of these pools, because they are a meeting place for the Icelandic people. It is where people go to socialize instead of something like a coffee house. In many ways, the geothermal pool was as much a part of the cultural revolution of Iceland as local energy or official separation from the Danes. This is how Stefan put it. You know, it's nice to come over here in, in what we call summer, <laughs> but I think most other people would not. But but I prefer Iceland uh, in, in the during the shortest days of January and February, where everyone goes to the outdoor swimming pools. While most countries use swimming pools to cool down on a warm summer day, we do exactly the opposite. We use them in the winter, you know, with, with snowflakes in our, our, our hair, sitting in a nice hot tub. Ah, that's heaven. Keep in mind that all of this is happening at the same time as the rest of the massive changes in Icelandic society that we've already talked about. So much was happening all at once in the country. And do you remember when I was talking about how the spreading of information and ideas was much more difficult before World War II? It took actual first-hand stories, mostly from Icelanders who traveled to the Americas, to show Icelandic engineers what geothermal power was capable of. And as stories of house heating made their way back to the island state from afar, the ideas began to come together. With the heated geothermal pools now established in Reykjavik and around the island, it became an obvious choice to make the best use of geothermal energy as possible. And this moment is one of the most important in terms of Iceland's sustainability, and a very important moment for the entire world's sustainability and energy usage. It was immediately clear that the most effective method of harnessing the natural heat of the earth was to use it to heat up other things, namely building. We will delve more into the technology behind geothermal heating and geothermal electricity in the next couple of episodes, but for now, just know that the Icelanders figured out how to harness geothermal heat for home and business uses early on, and it changed the Icelandic energy sector dramatically. Iceland is cold. Much like Canada, a large portion of the energy used in Iceland was just to keep things not frozen. And for a country with a goal to completely separate themselves from fossil fuel imports, the possibility of heating their buildings using naturally occurring heat was an extremely promising thought. But before Iceland could write off its heating energy expenditures, it would need a method of distributing that heat energy. After all, to make this system work, they would need to pull heat out of the ground and somehow integrate that heat into homes in a controlled way. Today, there are companies like Dandelion Energy, who can build you your own personal geothermal heating and cooling system basically in your front yard. Almost 100 years ago, that wasn't the case. These systems had existed to some extent in the US, specifically Idaho, where hot water from a geothermal energy source was pumped into homes and businesses to keep them warm. It was this methodology that, once implemented in Iceland, would take the country by storm. This is district heating. Now heating and cooling systems differ greatly depending on where in the world you are, and of course, these comfort-based systems are not even present everywhere. Where I live, the vast majority of heating systems are on a building-by-building -building basis. You are responsible for keeping yourself warm. 
Most people where I live use fossil gas furnaces, which are connected to fossil gas transmission lines that come directly to your house. District heating instead takes heat from a centralized source and distributes it using pipes, vents, insulation, and either hot water or steam. In the case of Idaho, and soon to be Iceland, this district heating used geothermal heat. In the coming years, geothermal heating would undergo relatively fast integration into Icelandic society. There was no time wasted between discovery and implementation because it was so obvious that this method of heat delivery was exactly what they were looking for cheap and local. And that has largely been the state of Icelandic energy systems ever since. Of course, more renewables have been added to keep up with demand, and geothermal energy has since been utilized in electricity production as well. The system has continued to iterate, inventing and implementing new technologies to optimize the energy system, but this is the point at which Iceland realized its goal as a nation. It wasn't long before Iceland was almost completely independent of trade for its energy systems. Today, Iceland's electricity is sourced from renewables 99.9% .9 of the time. This is mostly hydropower, making up about 73% of the production mix, while geothermal accounts for the rest. All house heating in the country is supplied through geothermal district heating, and of total energy consumption in Iceland, 85% comes from renewable sources. That statistic is also from almost 10 years ago now, and there have been some pretty major technological developments since then, so it's entirely possible that that number is higher. At this point, with an energy grid established, it can be helpful to really examine how that system works for the parties involved, namely the producer, the consumer, and any regulating body, like the government or regulation institution. Here's Stefan again. The big difference between power systems that depend on fossil fuels and the ones who built on hydropower, and you could say the same about geothermal power, is that the fossil fuel plants, they are so easy to put up and, and operate. You can order it with little or no notice at exactly the same size, you know, as you need it. This means that you don't really have to regulate or, 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 or try to tame the market. You just follow the flow with more rising energy demand. You just add a new machine or a, a, a new plant. Uh, but then you always have to pay for the fuel and the cost of running is quite high. On the other end of the scale, you have power systems like hydropower, which are so expensive to build. And preferably, you have studied, you know, the flow of the river in question for decades, you know, to have the best information. So it's heavy investment. But once, once it's up and running, it costs little or nothing, you know. This means those power systems that are dependent upon hydropower, they need a lot of organization, uh, they need to be able to predict how the growth of the market is going to be, and they have to step in quite directly to affect behavior of the customers. You know, So Icelandic power companies, for big periods of their history, they were trying to ask people to use less energy, to 
not to be wasteful in 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 their uses and even trying to uh, sway people away from switching over to new powerful household tools until they got a new power plant online then they completely changed the record and started to encourage people massively that they should use more energy and that Today, everyone needed to go out and buy a refrigerator or or, 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 or some, something something like that. So this is a power system that means much more direct, hands-on control of of, of, of the system. Uh, like for example, when Reykjavik got its first big hydropower plant in the late 1930s, almost no one was was cooking with electricity. Electric stoves were were few and they were primitive and they were very expensive but then almost overnight everyone switched over to cooking with electricity the 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 ad campaigns in 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 the newspapers did so almost with reference to like nationalistic duty you know to start to use electricity for cooking to uh, help the the city of of Reykjavik to make this big technological step so those power systems they tend to act differently than than the ones uh, in 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 other countries these systems are fundamentally different than fossil fuel based energy systems the energy market created by each is so distinct and separate that even though both systems are supplying the same commodity the financial system surrounding that commodity is unrecognizable between the two This is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a challenge that is going to be extremely relevant to climate and environmental actions in coming years. And there are even more options than just these two. Wind and solar are also a fundamentally different energy mix than fossil fuels, or hydropower, or geothermal energy. Nuclear energy is basically in a category of its own. This is also one of the hurdles that must be overcome when it comes to renewable implementation and the decarbonization of all sectors. The fact is, fossil fuels are versatile and easily adjustable, making them an energy source that is easy to use, especially for energy consumers and regulators. No matter what sector of renewables you look at to replace fossil fuels, the way the system operates will be different. This difference cannot necessarily be classified as good or bad, just different. In the case of hydropower, it means constant energy at an almost fixed rate, but a limited volume of it. So it will take some social and literal engineering to increase the output of the system. For intermittent sources like solar and wind, there is much more intermittency and high variability, but they are cheap and super easy to expand or reduce as needed. If we hope to make progress in our energy systems and all other sectors that are directly related to energy, we have to recognize that these differences exist and accept the fact that we will need to adjust accordingly. Assuming a different energy system will work in an identical fashion, or refusing to change out of fear or repercussions within the system, are both unacceptable outcomes that we can't afford right now. Each system differs on a variety of factors, but the most important to take into account are the initial capital costs that go into a project, the ongoing costs associated with running the plant throughout its lifetime, the volume of energy a plant can generate relative to its size, and the intermittency and adjustability of that energy. All of these factors contribute to the nature of the plant as a power source and the price at which energy is sold. All of this leads to the question of how industry would operate in such a place and how that would change 
as the energy system changes. As we've already established, industry in Iceland pre-war was pretty rudimentary, mostly exporting fish and agriculture products. Energy had a minimal role in industry itself, as both cornerstone industries of the country were mostly reliant on basic fishing gear and farming supplies, all of which were independent of energy. So what happens to a country with a sudden abundance of energy to exploit, which has had very little exposure to energy-reliant industry and society? They reinvent their societal systems and the industries they rely on. That's what Iceland did too, and it has become a big part of securing their culture as a nation on their own. So what can you use abundant, constant energy for? Preferably something that makes money. It turns out that aluminum industry is the ideal buyer for cheap baseload electricity making Iceland a hotspot for aluminum production. Yeah, you, you, you could say that the, the, the optimal way was that you would have a big hydro power plant up and running, and then almost on the same day, you would start a big aluminium smelter that would use as much as 80% of the electricity from day one. And the nice thing about aluminium smelters is that they use the exactly same amount of electricity all day round, all year round, you know, be it Christmas Eve or a, a sunny day in, 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 in June. And that is the dream for the uh, hydro power plant uh, manager because the regular customer, they tend to use different amount of electricity on, on, on different times during the day. Having this big like bulk buyer uh, of electricity, that meant you could skim off the rest and, and sell it to small industry and households. It was the advent of new technology-based industries around the 1960s and onwards that utilized large, consistent energy loads that gave Iceland a new sense of opportunity and prosperity. This revelation really was the gateway to true economies and efficiencies of scale in the country. With the advent of aluminum production as a cornerstone industry, Icelandic power companies were given the assurance of a consistent customer. Like Stefan said, this requires long-term planning. If this system is to work, it means precise coordination between energy provider and energy consumer. It also means having the foresight and planning to have both the power plant and industrial plant come online as close to synchronously as possible. But if you can make all of that happen, if you can get it just right, the result is beautiful. The assurance of a bulk buyer of electricity makes it justifiable for energy companies to build larger plants. Larger plants means an initially larger upfront cost, but if you know for certain that the majority of your energy will be sold every day, there is no worry of loss of investment. This means that the initial cost matters less and the plant can be built bigger. A bigger plant means more efficiency and lower cost per unit of energy. It's a win-win all the way around, from the producer to the industrial consumer to the residential energy consumers who get the cheap leftovers, while still having an extremely reliable source of energy 24-7, 365. The mid-1900s through to the early 2000s were a prosperous time for Iceland as they built out energy and industrial systems, securing the future for their next generations and establishing Iceland once again as an important member of global trade. The only difference was, Iceland now had the most important facet of a self-sufficient country, local power generation. That's not to say that Iceland became a nation completely self-reliant. 
Throughout this period, they traded with the rest of the world in massive capacities, especially for the resources required to build their energy systems in the first place, but at least they had their own energy. At this point, I should say that this is not a complete history. I skipped a whole lot of information from the initial settlement to the establishment of cities, and there is a lot more content to read up on in modern political and social movements throughout the late 1900s and 2000s. But these are the points most relevant to the sustainability story of Iceland, so that's what we covered. Anyways. There was one problem though, one that was never truly dealt with after the collapse of their fish export business. Yes, Iceland successfully rebuilt their industry and economy, but unfortunately similar to the fishing industry, the aluminum industry was an irreplaceable part of the Icelandic economy. It was no longer fish, but now a huge portion of Icelanders were dependent on at least decent prices for aluminum on the global trade market in order to keep their jobs. But this time, Icelanders were able to recognize that instability early, pointing out the danger of having an entire country's economy based on a single commodity. As such, Iceland has been establishing new economic pillars inviting new industries into the country to make use of the cheap, reliable electricity for a variety of uses. So they built this first big hydro plant with, for using the, 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 the glacier rivers, and they associated it with heavy industry. Today, 80 to 90% of the electricity produced in this country is used by heavy industry, uh, mostly the aluminium industry. But economists have been pointing out that fluctuation of price of aluminium can be really destabilizing for the, the Icelandic economy. So the big power companies have tried to switch over to more complex or, 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 or more, more, more different types of heavy industry, silicon production, and lately, databases, you know, which are just, let's face it, is just a glorified refrigerator, you know, with big fans and a lot of, of cooling equipment, and they are big purchases of Icelandic electricity today. So Iceland is diversifying, and they're doing a great job of it, to be fair. Iceland has done an impressive job at creating a steady growth economy because of this mentality. Of course, it has not been consistent throughout the years, no economy is, and they got hit with the 2008 and 2020 financial crises along with everyone else. But overall, Iceland has maintained a strong enough economy for long enough that they have provided their citizens with a high quality of life, plenty of jobs, and an interdependent society based on community. Today, Iceland is constantly marketing itself to industries all over the world as the place to base a business relying on its abundant, cheap, and renewable energy as a serious advantage for companies and businesses. Iceland has also come to worldwide renown for its culture and gorgeous vistas, making it a popular travel destination in recent years and adding a significant measure of service-based industry to the Icelandic economy. Overall, Iceland has continued to evolve as a country. With a solid economic foundation to build on, Iceland has become an example of what to do to combat climate change and environmental harm. Icelanders have also embraced this new identity. Although the transition to renewables in the country was initially for economic reasons and detached from environmental concerns, recent culture shifts in Iceland show that the country appreciates its status as a climate leader. Environmental protection policies 
have become a part of almost every aspect of life in Iceland, which we'll be talking about more in the later episodes of the season. Most of the uh, power companies, not all, but, but most of them and the biggest ones, they are in public ownership by the, the state or the municipalities, which I, I think is, is uh, really important. And, and, you know, they make big contributions uh, to the coffins of the state, you know, and, and the, the, the city of, of Reykjavik. Obviously, industry and the population profits from low energy prices. And, and we have been trying to attract companies and, and industries that, that, that use uh, a lot of energy. But at the same time, we, we, we always have to be careful that we are not part of a, a race to the bottom uh, you know, type of, of capitalism. There are interesting uh, times ahead because the mood you know, has changed. You know, a, a environmental attitudes have changed. Uh, 50 years ago, the big power companies could build pretty much any hydropower plant that they wanted without worrying about anyone protesting ab- about the big dams, you know, and the damage on, 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 on landscape. They could lay their power lines over the land without worrying about anyone complaining. But there is, has been a, a huge change in, 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 in that sense. People are, are much more sensitive towards big projects, you know, that are, can be damaging or, 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 or at least, you know, sorrowful for the, for the eye. We have been switching more over to electricity production with geothermal energy, but that is not a technology without environmental uh, concerns. There is no way of making electricity uh, and, 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 and energy that does not affect the nature in, in, in some way. But until very, very recently, because of the fact that we had so much hydropower and untapped geothermal energy, we had really not been looking into, for example, windmills. And trust me, we do, do not lack wind over here. <laughs> there are some really, really windy places, and there are quite big projects. They are mostly, you know, projects on the drawing board and, and, and many things that, that need to be done before they are, 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 are put into, into production. But I, I would predict that in, in the next 10 to 15 years, we are going to see a substantial part of the, the power production here uh, being done with, with wind power. For now, this is where we leave Iceland. Its energy and economy are in good hands and will likely only become more sustainable in the coming years as the push for climate action continues. Icelandic engineers and geothermal experts especially have already made great progress in developing the technologies used in Iceland and are now working hard to implement those same technologies elsewhere. Iceland is a leading nation in the climate movement, providing a shining example of how to decarbonize quickly, effectively, and with minimal impact on those working and living in the country. Everyone I've talked to for this season of the show has made a point to say that Icelanders, especially those who are directly involved in the energy systems, are passionate and excited to be spreading climate action to other countries around the world. One of the most effective ways to do this is by promoting geothermal energy, especially in concert with district heating systems. But 
That is a story for another episode. So that's all we're going to cover for the history of Iceland. If you're interested in learning more, first of all, I recommend you listen to the remaining episodes in this season because we may cover your topic later, but there is also some links in the show notes that you can follow for a more in-depth look. In the context of this episode, I should acknowledge that Iceland is unique. There is nowhere in the world quite like it. It has an abundance of natural energy sources that are comparatively easy to access in contrast to those same resources elsewhere. That's why it's important to view this story through a certain perspective. Iceland's journey to carbon neutrality is a fascinating one, and there are many lessons along the way that the rest of the world can definitely use. But it's not a blueprint. The only universal truth about the energy and industry in different countries is that there is no universal truth. Every location and culture is different, and will therefore be more inclined towards different methods of decarbonization, especially in their energy systems. That said, the mentality, the sense of community, and the simple drive and perseverance of the Icelandic people to make these changes happen in such a short period of time are inspiring, and 100% applicable in every other country around the world. From here on out, the focus will switch to more technology-based episodes as we uncover the developments of hydropower and geothermal energy that led to such success in the Icelandic energy system. I want to once again thank the people who made this season possible, Kama Thordarsson and Stefan Paulsson, as well as Green by Iceland and Business by Iceland, who have taught me so much about this beautiful country. I cannot thank you enough. Until next time, stay innovative.